This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Today, we talk about the history and recent rise of Islamophobia worldwide. My guest is Mariam Durrani, an assistant professor of anthropology at Hamilton College. That's that's one of the reasons why it's really important for you know educators to learn what this phenomena is because it has become so incredibly pervasive in society and to spend some time even thinking about how they might have some uh, misconceptions about Muslims and like what they can do to kind of address those misconceptions, right? You know, for, for educators, there's a lot of books, there's articles, there's a lot of even popular media, you know, that has been um, made to educate, uh, to, to teach about what is the Muslim student experience. In our conversation, we discuss both the state policy infrastructures enabling Islamophobia, while also the everyday discourses and actions that normalize the othering of a particular group. Dr. Durrani also discusses her own life story of growing up in a military family and witnessing the rise of Islamophobia in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks. There's a number of ways that before 9-11, there might not have been that much um, awareness about Islam or about Muslims so broadly. I remember I wrote an article about being the daughter of a soldier and kind of on the one hand, like I know who people in the army are, I had friends in the military, I grew up in that world. Nobody wants to go to war. Like this is not something that anybody is interested in like doing. Mariam Durrani recently published a book chapter, Communicating and Contesting Islamophobia. Mariam Durrani, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with rather a rather large question, and I, I'm not really sure how you're going to an- answer this. But, you know, to start, what is Islamophobia, in your opinion? So Islamophobia is um, broadly understood as... Um, I mean, by definition, it's like the fear of Islam. But there is something that's really missing by medicalizing this idea because it kind of relates Islam to something like the fear of spiders or a fear of small spaces. But it's not really that simple. Islamophobia is also talked about as anti-Muslim racism. And so that's a more descriptive term that helps to understand how Fundamentally, it's a way of racializing a population. And it's a population that hasn't been, um, that isn't seen demographically as a race, right? So there's certain, you know, in the U.S. census, for example, you have white, black, Asian, um, Hispanic, et cetera. Although I think Hispanic is an ethnicity, um, but, but Latino and, and that type of thing. But with, um, Muslims, we're, we're not all one group. And that's one of the things about this particular form of racism, which is it racializes a very large population where there's a billion some Muslims on planet Earth. And you have people from every continent, um, every, you know, background, every ethnicity. And yet um, at the moment, there's a way that this very large group of people is being seen as a monolith, as all the same and as all having this kind of same culture. Um, and so 
that might be the perception of it, but then there's also um, specificities that certain populations face. For example, Black Muslims face both anti-Black racism and anti-Muslim racism, and that can be compounded um, in particular ways. Um, the other thing to keep in mind about Islamophobia is that it is um, both at the level of kind of uh, state structure, straight infrastructure and state policy, and then also experienced in the everyday by people in schools in you know, at their workplace, um, just going to the grocery store. And um, it's important to, to make sure to see it as linked um, in this sense that it is not just it's not just happening where some people don't like Muslims. There's a whole infrastructure that has been kind of uh, mobilizing racism for other purposes, um, which, you know, is a much longer conversation on like, what's the reason for the war on terror and and these types of things in terms of geopolitical strategy. But fundamentally, it has made it possible to see Islam as an as the enemy. And there have been very clear statements like that by U.S. presidents of kind of you're either with us or against us from, you know, when George Bush was president to more recently with Trump, you know, when he's made statements like Islam hates us. And so this kind of, uh, yes, this, this, this is, this is part of how Islamophobia as a form of racism takes shape at the state and everyday level. So is this a particular phenomenon that happens in America or because of American, say, infrastructure and state policy? Or is Islamophobia something that is found sort of, you know, across countries, across the world? So, um, so I think Islamophobia is found in many different parts of the world. You, you see it, um, in, uh, many, uh, majority white Western democracies these days as white supremacist movements are kind of, um, targeting Muslim immigrants as part of both kind of an Islamophobic environment, but also a xenophobic environment where people who are seen as foreign, especially people who are racialized as black or brown are seen as especially foreign and possibly even dangerous. But I think that there's also a way that um, within Muslim countries or even across Muslim countries, there is kind of targeting those who are most marginalized. And sometimes that won't be that won't be like the majority Muslim uh, sect, but it'll be the minority Muslim sect, which will be seen as as a problem. And so um, and it also is happening, for example, in India. Um, with the current uh, government over there where Muslim populations, especially, you know, young people are are singled out and uh, made to suffer. In China, you have the Uyghur Muslims who have been, you know, put in detention camps and are being forced to eat pork or or listen to it's, over there. It's tied to like nationalist kind of like movements, too. So like but all these ways that uh, Muslim populations in various areas have been subjugated historically, politically, economically, and then there is also this kind of uh, state sanctioning for the mistreatment of this population. So people every day are experiencing some of these these issues. So I, I would imagine Islamophobia has, has a history to it. Um, and so I guess what I'm wondering is, what we are witnessing today worldwide, all these different examples that you've mentioned about Islamophobia in all these different countries, is this sort of more acute acute than, you know, previous times, or is this not necessarily that unprecedented and that Islamophobia has a 
you know, a, a longer history where, where there were other moments in time that were, um, you know, comparatively as bad, I guess I would use the word. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of academic work around Islamophobia, there's often a connection that's made to Orientalism, which is, um, you know, uh, a theory that Edward Said, who is a professor at Columbia University, um, in 1978, he wrote a book called Orientalism, where he talks about this particular kind of British French colonial project that saw the Orient. And often the Orient was made up of Muslims, especially in the, in the Middle East as kind of exoticized and, and also kind of uh, studied for the sake of colonization for this, for the, for the purpose. Um, and so it was also represented back in Europe, in Britain or in France as this kind of exotic culture and these savages sometimes or like these kind of very clever people. So there's all these ways that there was this racialization process happening. It wasn't talked about as such back then, or maybe it wasn't even seen as a problem really, you know, like by the majority at that time, just because of how colonial kind of logics work. But um, there was a history to it. And then in terms of the term Islamophobia, I think it first was used in France in the early 20th century. And then uh, later in uh, the late 80s, there was a report written in uh, in England um, called the Runnymede uh, Trust Report, which I talk about in the chapter, um, which was a kind of study of Islamophobia. And that's when Islamophobia was was seen as kind of Muslims who were being marginalized or persecuted in England. Um, and so there was this attention in the 80s. And one can think, of course, of like the Iranian Revolution and how that was perceived in the West as really this kind of like um, moment where Iranian Americans and Muslims were seen as kind of not as, uh, you know, modern and, and seen as kind of backward or as kind of like religious in this like religious fanatic, fanatic kind of way. And so you had these moments in the past and those were often also connected to the Cold War. Um, but later with 9-11, there was a, a, a significant shift where you had you know, a U.S. led coalition that launched this uh, offensive in Afghanistan in retaliation for 9-11 uh, was the story. And um, then you have this war that's still ongoing. So we're, we're now almost 18 years into this war. And so that's why I think it's always important to connect it to um, these larger kind of like processes that are playing out that what happens in the classroom or what happens um, on the street is not completely disconnected from these um, macro level kind of like processes that people might not be directly involved with, but are nonetheless kind of drawing on in terms of that, that sentiment. And so your work does look at this sort of everyday level of, of, of what's happening uh, on the ground. And you focus on these uh, micro level linguistics to sort of detail how American Islamophobia is communicated. So can you give us an example of what that actually means uh, in, in real life, like the way in which uh, linguistics have been impacted by Islamophobia? Sure. I think there's a number of ways that before 9-11, there might not have been that much um, awareness about Islam or about Muslims 
so broadly. I mean, there, there was certainly, but not, not so much as, as it became after 9-11. Um, and I think, for example, even this particular articulation of you're either with us or against us really demands that the listener align themselves, you know? And I remember there was even a line that Bush once said of like, you're either, you're either for freedom or you're against freedom. And so like, as you know, everyday Americans hear something like this coming from the president, and there has been this horrific, like tragedy that has happened on US soil, there is emotions are high, emotions are like really high, right. And um, in that moment, unfortunately, I feel like the political leadership initially did not understand or did not see that this was going to have this effect, or maybe it wasn't I don't know, even seen as as important as this other task, which was national security. And so there is a way that, you know, political discourse has for the last, you know, almost 20 years, very clearly articulated this idea. At first, it was kind of like, you're either with us or against us. And then later, there became this idea of like the good Muslim versus the bad Muslim. And so there was this kind of demand on Muslim Americans, specifically, to align themselves with the right version of being Muslim, because this more marked version, which might be the beard or wearing the hijab or, you know, uh, observing certain kinds of, you know, gendered practices that are seen, you know, in su- for, by some as like, you know, not about freedom or what have you. Like, I mean, oftentimes, you know, people want to know, like, do women have independence? Are women free? And there's this kind of like oppressed Muslim stereotype and it gets produced in these kind of like everyday questions or conversations that people might have about Muslims that don't necessarily get as much of a critical eye as maybe other kinds of stereotypes. Um, It's almost like sometimes uh, there's been studies that have found that there's a level of uh, acceptance around racializing Muslims that is not as common in mainstream media when it comes to like other kinds of racist stereotypes, which are clearly seen as like, we do not say things that way. It's a problem to say it that way. So, so, you know, with Ilhan Omar, for example, you know, there's a lot of very pointed comments that are made about her, about her as a Muslim, as a Muslim woman. And those are the kinds of comments that you hear in the news and then you might see in movies. And then it's not surprising if students start speaking that way or have these, you know, incorrect you know, um, ideas because they're really getting it from a lot of different, you know, sources. And so it only kind of, uh, solidifies these ideas, um, as, as real, as, as very much true or something. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a lot of these stereotypes sort of circulate in this media, social media, political realm that just sort of reinforces each other. And then ultimately becomes a version of truth, as you said. Right. Especially I'm thinking of like, there was a a moment in the Democratic National Convention in 2016, where they brought the parents of a gold star um, soldier to the convention. Um, And it was uh, two parents, a a father and a mother. And the mother had worn the hijab. I mean, mean, she was actually wasn't wearing hijab. She was wearing what we Pakistanis would call a dubatta. They were Pakistani Americans. She was wearing a veil over her head. I remember you know, both feeling a little bit uncomfortable about having 
Muslim Americans have to show that they were willing to sacrifice so much for the country to be seen as, you know, real Americans. You know, like there's this way that had they been like two uh, engineers or something, it wouldn't have had the same impact, right, as like the parents of a fallen soldier, which obviously is very sad for them. And I, I completely understand why they did that. But I think the way that gets depicted is like only if you are, you know, doing that, are you really like understanding what it means to be an American? And I'm really conflicted about that, partially also because my father was in the military. He was in the army for almost 25 years. And so I also know what it's like to be on the inside of the military community. And, you know, it's a very complicated set of issues. Um, but then the other thing was when Trump talked about the mother, you know, the mother didn't speak during the particular, the speech, the, the father was the primary speaker. And he said something about like, I don't even know if she was allowed to talk. And later, um, you know, she wrote a editorial in the Washington Post that basically said that it was just so emotionally difficult for me to be up there that I wasn't comfortable speaking, you know, and so like her humanity or her motherhood was so um, was so invisible if you if you reduce her to this caricature of a person who didn't have the permission, you know, supposedly to speak. And so like those are the ways, again, that like you know, at, at such a major platform, the representation of a Muslim woman is, is stereotyped. And so it's just why the current, you know, uh, Ilhan Omar and kind of, um, what she's doing in terms of, of, uh, being a Muslim woman and an amazing, you know, uh, figure in current, you know, contemporary politics and getting a lot of attention is all the more kind of like interesting given what people often stereotype about Muslim women, you know, that's, it's a stereotype. It's, it's very inaccurate. What was it like living? You said you grew up with a father who was in the military and that you had sort of conflicting views. I mean, what was that like? What was it like to experience or did you experience Islamophobia through your interactions with various military officials and people just serving in the military? You know, so that's a really interesting question. Um, I would have to say that my experience was, on the whole, really fantastic. Um, I think um, people who are in the military actually are very used to difference and are very, you know, we lived in Germany, so people were, you know, uh, pretty international, had a lot of exposure to the world. Um, and then also within the army, you have a lot of diversity within, within the, you know, military community. And so uh, I grew up in an environment where I think me being Muslim wasn't necessarily the thing. I, I was certainly from a immigrant family and that was certainly present in the sense that, uh, you know, I didn't necessarily have the same reference points as my classmates and things like that. But, you know, that, that happens in a lot of settings where, where you're, uh, you know, the minority. Um, but I wouldn't say it was directed with kind of racist intent or that type of thing, but it did shift after 9-11. I think after that, um, no matter where you went to school, that became visible. So I was a junior in college attending the University of Arizona. And after, you know, first of all, when, when it happened, you know, everybody was just really shocked. And then when it came out that these were uh, people who were identified as Muslims, 
it became very pointed of like who was to blame. And so it went very quickly from like shock to like directed kind of, um, you know, uh, the, the local mosque was getting messages, threatening messages. And then on campus, the newspaper started having a lot of articles that specifically said things like in Islam, it's okay to do these types of things that it's a it's a violent religion. And I just found that to be the most upsetting because my experience of being a Muslim was obviously not that. And so I was really upset that this was what was being presented as if it was a valid kind of perspective to have. And so my first kind of work around Islamophobia, even before I knew that that's what you call it, was to write for my college newspaper. Um, and I wrote for it for about a year and a half. And during that time, I, I would write often about this particular issue and like how Muslims were being treated. I would also, I, I remember I wrote an article about being the daughter of a soldier and kind of on the one hand, like I know who I know who people in the army are. I had friends in the military. I grew up in that world and nobody wants to go to war. Like this is not something that anybody is interested in like doing. And so the fact that it was then presented as like, there is no other option. Like this is what we have to do. And then to see that it has gone on for so long. And aside from, you know, the many people who have been killed, who are, who are, um, Americans in the war, there's been thousands and thousands of, um, civilians who have died, um, you know, as a result of this military campaign. And it's just very upsetting that, um, you know, it's gone on. So like, I think it's just complicated where I understand the military community is also not necessarily like sees, sees this as a, you know, nobody wants to go to war. I mean, it's just one of those things. Uh, it's quite a fascinating story because you basically lived through and saw this shift in attitude in American public life, um, both inside the military and inside civilian life in, in, in a way. Um, and I guess it's interesting that you were in university while this was happening because it, it makes me wonder, you know, what is the role of education and schooling in either sort of producing or reinforcing Islamophobia while maybe also countering and providing alternative narratives and making, you know, you know, fighting against Islamophobia. So, I mean, in your sense, what is the role of school in, in all of this? I think it's uh, so important that um, given the kind of way that American schooling has changed, uh, especially over the last like 50, 60 years, where there has been this really concerted effort to, number one, integrate, number two, allow students to have a broader kind of perspective of the world and really kind of like have this kind of global education that, you know, we talk about a lot, both in terms of K through 12 schooling and certainly in uh, college and university, like educational context in terms of like, how do you prepare students for the 21st century? And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why it's really important for, you know, educators to learn what this phenomena is because it has become so incredibly pervasive in society and to spend some time even thinking about how they might have some 
misconceptions about Muslims and like what they can do to kind of address those misconceptions, right? You know, for for educators, there's a lot of books, there's articles, there's a lot of even popular media, you know, that has been um, made to educate, uh, to, to teach about what is the Muslim student experience. And, you know, there's been some really great documentaries, actually, that that do this type of work. And then I think from students' perspective, it, it obviously depends on their developmental stage. So for younger students, it would be about bringing in books into the classroom that represent Muslim stories and Muslim voices. I have written um, a short piece for the Harvard um, education, like online magazine, where I talk about, for example, when you're teaching younger children, that one way of bringing in, you know, some awareness around uh, culture within Muslim communities is to, for example, if you're doing a segment on nutrition, and you're talking about food, and you talk about how, you know, uh, Jewish kids might eat kosher, Muslim kids eat halal, other kids might be vegetarian, you know, Hindu students might be vegetarian. And so there's this way of kind of showing Islam as this, you know, very, you know, normal everyday part of people's lives. And I think, you know, educators sometimes do this thing of like talking about Islam exclusively. And then you talk about other groups exclusively. And, and especially for younger kids, I think seeing that we're all people and that we all have um, different ways of being human is, is great. And I think it goes into older students as well, but with older students, you can get a little bit more critical and have them read some of the you know, history and understand where some of these ideas come from and really recognize that, you know, these are tied to these broader ideas of racism and where racism comes from and where this kind of like uh, fear of the racialized other um, comes from historically, you know, so you with older students, I think you can get into that. But for all students, I've found, especially for college students, it's really helpful for them to understand the broader context rather than just kind of like zooming in on like one kind of story about Muslims, because anytime you teach only one story, the danger of a single story, as um, Chinamanda Adichie uh, has talked about, is that it becomes the story, the only story. And so you always want to have multiple kind of, you know, um, stories being told at the same time. So this sort of bottom-up educational approach to counter Islamophobia and counter racism, as you've been describing, do you think that will impact sort of the state level, the state infrastructures that are supporting and furthering Islamophobia and Islamic racism? Um, or do you think something else is going to have to happen as well? Yeah, I, I think that it's the second. I think it's definitely going to have to be a much broader um, effort just because of how this whole operation has grown and how it is actually profitable uh, at this point for many very powerful people to continue some version or, um, I mean, like, as I was saying, like, I... I I, when I say like nobody wants to go to war, I'm also thinking of like when you're the child of a military service member who has to go, right? So like, um, when these things are happening, when there are these massive military assaults, uh, you know, uh, interventions, campaigns, whatever you want to call them, like they impact the whole family. And so like, I'm also thinking of the way that that plays out. Um, and so I don't think that it's so much about 
Like, I wish it was possible that if we had anti-racist education, that it had such a far-reaching effect, because it would definitely make teachers and educators feel uh, really great. But I think oftentimes what we're doing is responding to what's happening at a much more kind of like global level. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I always think about how, while we do so much in terms of like addressing anti-Black racism, there's a way that until you know, um, mass incarceration is addressed or until, um, you know, we have some kind of immigration policy that doesn't recognize um, anybody without particular kinds of citizenship, you know, to be seen as an outsider. Like there are these kind of like really policy level issues that will take so much longer to be affected by education. So in the meantime, we often end up kind of responding to students' fears um, and also, especially to students of color or Muslim students right now. I mean, my research with Muslim college students in New York, um, what I observed quite often, and I also see it with my own students, um, is that it's, it's one issue is that when you're walking through the world and someone says a slur to you or pulls your hijab off or, um, you know, expects you to apologize after like a, you know, a terrorist event as if you had something to do with it, right? To expect, for example, um, I gave a talk at a, in New Hampshire and I remember there was a group of, you know, sixth, sixth or seventh grade girls, um, who were all second generation, um, from, uh, the Middle East and, um, North Africa. And, uh, they came with their teacher, right? So their teacher brought them to this talk that I was giving at this university. And afterward they said like, you know, it's so hard because people think that, you know, we have something to do with it. And it's just kind of like unbelievable, right? That like, you would think that a 12 year old girl living in like, you know, a town in New Hampshire has anything to do with any of these issues, but that's just how un unreasonable. And also just kind of like, how deep some of these ideas are that like they defy rationality in some ways, but for some people they seem perfectly rational. And so um, I feel like it's really the job of educators to be aware of this larger social context, to be there for students. And so I thought it was so wonderful that this teacher brought these students to this talk and this, these students felt like, yes, these issues that we're facing, like there's a name for it and there's a whole story for it. And there's, people who are talking about it. And it's not just me like alone feeling this way or just me and my friends, but actually like um, adults who are actually like really invested in figuring out what's, what this is about and how do we talk about it and how educating a larger group. And so, yeah, I think uh, it's going to take a lot more to change it, but I think in the meantime, there's a lot that um, as educators we can do to make it safer and um, a better learning environment for, for all the students. Well, Mariam Durrani, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure of talking, and I'm, I'm with you. I, I hope we can somehow change this infrastructure that is supporting Islamophobia, and, and I, I hope educators can play a role in that. I agree. I agree. Thank you so much for having me. Mariam Durrani is an assistant professor at Hamilton College. One of her recent publications is entitled Communicating and Contesting Islamophobia. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support.
Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. And original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.